from Rixie. This is Frameform. Happy Wednesday, everyone. Claire here. If you're in the dance film world, you probably know Kara Hagen, likely through her work curating for ADF's Movies by Movers and her invaluable writing in publications ranging from Dance Magazine to the International Journal of Screen Dance. But that's only the tip of the iceberg of her rich interdisciplinary practice, which is imbued in community building and creative facilitation initiatives. Hannah had the opportunity to speak with Kara about her practice and steps that the dance film field can take in order to confront and challenge traditional structures of creation, presentation, and meeting that often exclude valuable creative voices. Kara Hagen, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. It's an honor to have you on here, honestly. I mean, everyone knows you for your writing and your curation with Movies by Movers for American Dance Festival and also your work in general. Huge advocate in the field. So I welcome you to the Frameform podcast today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here with you all today. Well, As I mentioned a few things, writer, filmmaker, advocate, curator, mother, (laughs) teacher, educator, everything above. Um, For those who don't know who you are, can you tell a little about yourself, what you do, who you are, all of that? Yeah, so I'm an interdisciplinary artist, and my work exists at the intersections of movement, words, digital space, contemplative practice, and community. So that means that I have my hands in a lot of things, but they're all connected, even though I think um, when people first meet me, it doesn't feel that connected. Um, But screen dance has been this bright light in my artistic practice because, of course, it's a hybrid art form. It's interdisciplinary. And it's given me an opportunity to not only get my work out there in a way that I can't with live performance, but also has given me um, access to this wonderful community of people who are amazing practitioners, really passionate artists and advocates, and really just really nice people. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, there's definitely a lot of nice people in the field and a very supportive community, which Mm -hmm. is very comforting for, I mean, the dance film community, it's small and large at the same time. And um, as of last year with Shelter in Place, it kind of just grew a little bit more closer, even though we are so far apart. So it's a special community to be a part of. For sure. Now... As we all know, you for who you are, I mean, curation is a big part of the work that you do. What drew you into curating dance films or creating your own film festival, being a filmmaker yourself? Yeah, so at first it was really curiosity about the process of choosing and screening films as a younger filmmaker. You know, it just seemed like kind of an enigma to me. And when I was in graduate school, Um, I decided to do a practicum uh, as a curator and say, okay, well, I don't know a lot about this. I'm going to use this practicum to learn more about it. And uh, that's really how Movies by Movers got started. And I wouldn't say the first couple of times I did it, I was a curator at all. I mean, the first year that I did it, um, I put out a call just to folks in North Carolina. I got like 11 films. We showed 
pretty much all of them. (laughs) And there really wasn't much curation going on. And quite frankly, I didn't really have an understanding of what it means to curate something. I was just looking for, quotation marks, good films. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously now, um, having had all the experience that I've had, it's not about good and bad. It's about so many more things than that. And it really has a lot less to do with my own personal preferences as a person who watches things than it has to do with putting together uh, something that has an energetic trajectory for an audience, right? And supporting artists in meaningful ways and creating spaces and places for artists and audiences to meet in meaningful ways. Definitely meeting uh, in those film festival spaces is very special. Just how getting filmmakers, non-filmmakers, performers all together to see something. It it really truly starts something beautiful and just like conversation and exposure in general. One thing that you've mentioned a lot in your work or even just in your artist statement alone is like the term artist surrogacy. So... I I would love you to expand a little bit more on that term within your film festival curation. Yeah, so artistic surrogacy is actually a process that I started working on a couple of years ago as a way to confront and challenge some of the hierarchical structures that I experienced and perceived in the arts landscape broadly. So this actually has to do with most every type of art, right? Where especially institutional spaces are involved, where people are wanting to have their work shown. And there are all these impediments to, quote, being an artist that the actual art of it often gets buried in the hierarchies and the bureaucracy of, okay, so who are you? Do you have this certain kind of body? Do you have this certain kind of body of work? Do you have this certain kind of education, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we know that the artistic landscape as it exists in a, quote, professional realm leaves a lot of people out. Yeah, yeah. And recognizing also that it is an incredible privilege in a Western society to be an artist, to be a working artist, because it means that not only have you probably been educated or given uh, an open door in some kind of a way, shape or form, but also that you've had the capital to do it. Being an artist, especially starting out, is really expensive, and the arts are discriminatory in terms of uh, gender, for example. A lot of women find it really hard to travel um, because if you are mothering, well, not only do you have that responsibility, but society says, well, you're a mom. Aren't you out of it now? It was one of the things that I remember one of my male colleagues said to me when I was pregnant oh, but you're going to have a baby. You're not going to make anything anymore, right? Like you're done. And I said, what makes you think that? (laughs) So to get back to your original question, artistic surrogacy is about sharing ideas across bodies and across borders in ways that uphold translational um, possibility, right? So for example, these projects look like this. So somebody at a distance, and this is all about working at a distance. And this was pre-COVID. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's kind of interesting how COVID was like, now we're going to do everything at a distance. And I've been doing it already. So somebody might say, hey, I'm working on a concept and I can't get to North Carolina. Could you carry this concept to North Carolina for me? Mm -hmm. 
but in your own way. Let's have a talk about it. Let's uh, be in the studio together through Zoom or whatever it is. And it's not just dancers. I mean, I've worked with people who don't dance at all Mm -hmm. and have brought their ideas to life uh, through my body and through my interdisciplinary work in ways that are satisfying to them, but also speak to what my skills are. And vice versa, you know, I've, I've given ideas to other people to kind of bring forth in their own space, in their own way. So it's highly collaborative because it's not like choreography where somebody says five, six, seven, eight, these are the steps, do the steps. Mm-hmm. It's not that at all. And I think um, for people to truly understand what it is, you kind of have to go through the process of it. And so in terms of curation, obviously I think of myself as somebody who as a curator, cares for other people's work, right? And at the core of artistic surrogacy is a culture of care, caretaking. This is something that I feel like in our society is just missing, like 99.9% of the time is this uh, ethic of care, right? And so the root word of curate is a Latin one, which means to care for, right? And so when you think about your job as a curator, it's not just about picking stuff. It's about having concern for the work and the artists that make that work. And so not only is it a creative pursuit and a logistical pursuit, it's an ethical pursuit, right? And the way that you handle people's work and the way that you, um, the way that you share that work in accordance with their wishes and all of those things. I mean, obviously uh, it's hard to do it right every moment, but the fact that it is a practice of trying and reframing, recalibrating, always revisiting how you do it means that it doesn't get stagnant. And that's where I think the artistic surrogacy comes in for me. I love that. Something that just came to mind when you explained about just like the ethics and sharing, it it kind of makes me think of like the screenings that we go to or we see on wherever we're watching these screens it's like a potluck, you know, everyone's bringing their dish and celebrating it and just loving it for what it is. And I I think that just now it kind of gave me a new perspective of just watching these film festivals. I mean, I never, I've always enjoyed and appreciated just watching works and really thinking about it. But now, I don't know, I'll just all of a sudden just made me think of like, I never thought of it as the ethical part of it. Maybe it was like in me somehow, but not something about the words connecting there. I I think care is definitely a huge part of dance films in general, just because there's so many out there from, as I said earlier, globally, you got to show everyone in some kind of way. Now, because you've been doing this for so long, like what have you learned the most about collecting these films and showcasing them to the public? Well, one thing that I've learned uh, that's been a big part of my scholarship and my writing is that we still have a lot of work to do in terms of our relationship to representation, right? So those of you who are not looking at me and don't know me, I'm a black artist. And when I came into screen dance, I didn't see anybody who looked like me. I was like, huh, where are all the black screen dance makers? Of course they exist. But if we think about someone like Maya Darren, for example, Mm -hmm. who is this obviously very important figure in our field, um, 
But what's talked about less is the influence of Catherine Dunham on her work, right? So they knew each other. She toured with Catherine Dunham, uh, and she met, that's where she met Tally Beatty, uh, who was in her film uh, study choreography for the camera. Mm-hmm. And she had a lot of uh, interest in Haiti and Haitian culture, and that was because of Catherine Dunham. And it's apparent in her films, but it's not always talked about. And so also thinking of um, different, more from the dance field specifically, but how different uh, dancers in the field have appropriated certain dance forms or styles and really haven't given uh, credence to where they got it from. So if I'm thinking of like the serpentine dance, for example, and I'm thinking of, you know, people like Ruth St. Dennis and Annabelle Whitford and other people who were doing that type of vaudeville style and how they were taking a lot from uh, Eastern dance forms and never having studied these forms before, but going, hey, this is a part of my practice. And the dance field Now it's getting to the point where it's having a reckoning with a lot of these things, but we still have so much work to do in terms of really coming to terms with what that erasure has meant and what it's going to mean moving forward. To add to that, I mean, of course, I think that in both dance and film, we have this this commitment to perpetuating certain types of aesthetics and bodies on screen. Um, and this goes back to day one of filmmaking. If we think about, for example, some of Edison's early films, one film that I show a lot in my classes um, is a dancer named Fatima Jamil. She was a Syrian belly dancer oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and how she was censured uh, at the Chicago World's Fair um, at the turn of the century. And, you know, she was censured, but other people were not censored, right? And so how we uh, think about the bodies on screen that are acceptable. And still, even though we've been having so many conversations, especially this past year after the whole George Floyd thing went down and COVID happened and people kind of had a moment to stop and think about it, but still, 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 the overwhelming majority of bodies that we see and bodies that are upheld are young, thin, white, able-bodied, female bodies, because this is what society thinks is beautiful. Um, And there are some really interesting pieces of scholarship that you can uh, look at about media that talk about, you know, what types of people were acceptable. For example, uh, if you're looking at television and families on television and what were considered to be acceptable families to show, right? And still, even today, that's playing out. If you think about Hayes Code Hollywood and how people were contractually obligated to show up in spaces in a certain way with certain people or without certain people. And even though Hayes Code isn't a thing anymore, it's still a thing, right? So if you look at, say, uh, the Hollywood Diversity Report, which is put out by UCLA each year, you know, it kind of lays it out for you where the disparities still are and how those are still having effect, not on just what we see, but also in the economics of the, the arts industries, specifically film as it relates to that report. And so... I think that it's um, interesting how as much as these disparities hurt us, we're really still committed to them. So there you have it. That was my spiel, part of it anyway. No, I think it's very, I think it's very important us as 
people <laughs> and artists and makers and all of everything above is just striving to, you know, make better and try new things to get people know about these certain things. And I think especially in the dance community, there's like a dance film community, I should say, there's definitely a huge gap between like educational academia and then those who are just dancers and not involved in that. So, I mean, if I didn't go to college, I will admit, like I wouldn't know about this, this kind of culture that is out there, this kind of mode of filmmaking. And I think it's important that we put it on these platforms that are much more accessible to the public and getting more people that are not affiliated in dance involved for the benefit of, you know, I mean, the body itself is just a celebration. And one thing I was reading actually in one of your many written pieces of work, I was talking about going in depth about those disparities and how do we go outside of the college space educational space and one thing you wrote about was the how house studio at at boone oh the house space house space yeah and talking about your exhibition can you talk about how putting that showcase together to connect the dots between people who are coming and going don't know dance but come to stop all of that yeah, so the house space um, unfortunately doesn't exist anymore. After that exhibition went up, the house space, uh, the, the actual building is still there, but it belongs to somebody else. Oh. Anyway, I digress. So I'll say a couple of things. So in terms of the house space, because it was a heavily trafficked area where people are going through walking on foot and on bikes to go to bars and restaurants downtown, Um, in Boone, this was a really great space to have an open exhibition where people could see screen dance in a lot of different ways. So for example, um, I commissioned a handful of tiny dance films, like one minute, and put them on iPads around the space. But I also had a collection of um, flip books, which were dances in your hand. And that was really like really fun because this is uh, part of a college campus, even though this particular building is off campus, it belonged to the campus. And so you had a lot of young folks who came through who were like, I've never seen a flip book before. (laughs) (laughs) And because you can do the flip book forward, backwards, you can decide to go really fast or a little slower. People actually had an opportunity to edit a little bit or influence their own experience of the pieces that were a part of these flipbooks. And in that space, we also made a a community dance film. And this was actually influenced um, by the Dance Barn Festival in Battle Lake, Minnesota. They did a lovely um, community dance film. And I was like, Boone would be the perfect place to do that. You know, it's a small town. A lot of people know each other. And there's also this vibrancy of having um, all the young folks there uh, as part of a university community. And so it was just a really active space. People were walking through. People were picking things up, putting things down, dancing with each other. And uh, that particular space made it possible for some people who may not have shown up in a more traditional screening in the screening room at the art gallery on campus, that they actually did come because I said, oh, I, I came to this exhibition. I saw these pieces. My interest has been piqued. Now I know something about this. 
Now, going further than that, I'll say also that as a community and in the arts more broadly, it's really important that we... um, that we see spaces like Instagram and TikTok also as really rich repositories of amazing work that are made by people who may or may not identify as dancers, filmmakers, artists at all. Some of them do, actually a lot of them do. But also because it's such an accessible space, it gives us an opportunity to see a lot of material all the time, Mm -hmm. all at once. Mm -hmm. And I'm always looking for gems, right? And going, hey, this is a new way that I've seen, that I haven't seen something like this before. This is pretty cool. And steering people to that space as well as a way to continue seeing more and more work. Obviously, because of the way that technology has gone over the past decade, like we're just in a really different space with our work than we were 10 years ago, even five years ago. I mean, you know, on the one hand, Uh, We can think of things as not quite as precious as they used to be in that, you know, some people make content every day as a practice. You know, these influencers are making it their business, literally, because they're getting paid also, which is (laughs) huge. Getting that ad read. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but they're making it their business to create something each and every day. Uh, yes, it's a product of needing to be able to keep the numbers of their followers up for the sake of being paid. But at the same time, it kind of forces you into a practice where it's like you constantly have to step up your game. And you made that thing yesterday, it goes down in the feed, time for the next thing. And so it really, in a way, gives you a, a space to experiment again and again and again and again and just build your skills, build your skills, build your skills in a practical way because you're doing it every day. On the other hand, it also uh, gives you a way to deposit stuff as ideas for when you're ready to make that precious thing. You know, I tried this little study. I tried this little experiment. I put it on TikTok. Cool. People responded to it. Awesome. And I'm ready to make my larger film, my project that I got some grant funding for, whatever it might be. And these are the things that I, uh, that really worked. These are the things that I'm still thinking about. And this is what I'm going to do. I mean, it's also a place for uh, planning, for thinking through one's work, right, in a public way. So there's this idea that as artists, we always want to show our best stuff when it's ready to be shown. But there's something about social media that gives us permission to show stuff in process in ways that we never showed stuff in process before. Mm-hmm. Isn't that nice? It's crazy <laughs> that, how, yeah. how, I mean, yeah, time of the essence just moving as fast as possible. It's insane how this social media, I mean, I'm not a TikTok user myself, um, I, that's just a personal thing, but it, it's it's nuts how it just comes and goes like a blink of an eye. And with that in mind, just like as we're talking about how time and maybe not being carrying your precious babies of work, is that influencing your process of curation as you know, as we move from social media back into the film festival space? where you're trapped in a theater for 90 minutes instead of just going up and down on your newsfeed. Has that started any new ideas of curation in your thought processes as you're putting something together? 
Yeah, so there's definitely been a lot of cross-pollination. And I want to say that balance is really important in that we need slow experiences. In this digital world, we have to have slow experiences where we are sitting for 90 minutes and absorbing a big amount of work and just letting it wash over us. At the same time, you know, just dipping in for a minute, two minutes, three minutes, whatever it is to get a little dose of you know, that art or whatever it is, is also really great. And a couple of years ago, I did an InstaFest. And this was, um, uh, I guess, 2018. And shortly after, Dance on Camera did something similar, but different. <laughs> and so what I did on Instagram, and I looked and I, I actually put in hashtags just to like see if other people were doing it and if they were what they were doing you know InstaFest and what I found was like uh, actual festivals filmed and put on Instagram so it was really different than what I was thinking as in using it as a place to actually curate work so I asked people to tag Movies by Movers in their films and videos and at the end of that I took the collection of what I got and I put them up in a gallery and said, hey, this is fine art too. Yeah. (laughs) And kind of had the mashup of these spaces of this slow space, this fast space, this space that is for quote fine art uh, and on all the expectations that come with that. And then this other space where the expectations are completely different, but not necessarily that the stakes are less high. Because, especially if you're going for followers, there is, there's a lot of work to be done to get followers, right? And there are hierarchies in digital space. It's this misnomer that people, or this misconception that people have that digital space is just this, uh, this totally equal place. It's not, no. <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and there are a lot of hierarchies to mitigate there as well. However... It felt like for me, like I could kind of scratch the surface at interrogating and asking other people to interrogate our relationships to these spaces uh, as well. I think you are making really solid points about how the connection of social media meeting this higher art form of dance film, you know, and in the festival space. I mean, it's hard. It's both a tug of war, like you're saying, the Mm -hmm. balance between the two. And... I mean, with the curation process of that, I mean, what would be like your perfect world of, we're talking about like disparities and social media and crossing that step of gaining new people to be involved in this. What does that perfect world look like? Well, I don't know if perfection is the goal necessarily because I think perfection is the antithesis of really awesome stuff happening. (laughs) But I will say that I do wish that we were better at naming the ways that we have been complicit in perpetuating um, spaces and exhibitions and shows and festivals that are not as inclusive as they could be and doing our due diligence to open up the doors. I mean, actually, I don't think it's that hard. Yeah. Right. I don't think that everyone should have to go to college to know what screen dance is 
and begin participating. I don't think that everybody should have to have been to however many festivals to really get an idea of what it means to celebrate something in a festival uh, space, in a festival situation. And I think that the at least one answer to that is that in the field, actively making more connections where we find those other pieces of work. So that might mean that myself as a curator, I'm reaching out to influencers and saying, hey, you have some work that I think would be really great for this. And then other folks reaching out to us saying, hey, um, I'm looking for some artists for this event, this event, this event. Who do you know? And just really being active in connecting people, opening doors, because as a curator, you know, we're gatekeepers. Yeah. And so not that you necessarily want to step into that role, but that is exactly what we are. There really isn't a way around it, because if you have an event and you have a competitive process by which people are submitting work to be either chosen or not chosen, that means that you're the end of the road to that person either having their work shared or not. And so, of course, there's a lot of complexities in that, right? Like not just choosing work because it will create the type of program that you wish for the festival that year, but also the logistics of time and space, right? We always get way more submissions than we can screen. There's always a limit to how much people will actually watch, right? To where they say, you know, I've been to like four events already. I think I'm done. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, you have to be sensitive to that as well. But I think that uh, one of the things that we really need to do is interrogate the canon. So where we have, you know, the Maya Darens and the Shirley Clark and all that kind of stuff, you know, we also need to be thinking about Julie Dash and Spike Lee and Missy Elliott and all these other people who might not be described as dance filmmakers, but are certainly creating or have created stuff that is really significant to the field. Yeah. Because it is what we endeavor to do, and they've done it really well. Yeah. I I agree. I think just because it's maybe like speaking of like Missy Elliott and Spike Lee, two very large names that are also doing like mind breaking things. I mean, I'll, when she when she first said Missy Elliott, all I could think of is like the Get Your Freak On music video, and like talk about the experimentation of you know crossing the boundaries of hip-hop music and performance dance genre I mean all of it all at once I mean video effects for that time I mean that was the early 2000s that is not just a needle in a haystack that is a gem right there it's a I, I think we should definitely feature more of those kind of artists that are diamond in the rough we could say you know like why aren't we digging them more and elevating their voices more everybody influences each other that's a whole part of also what film is it's like all we're doing is like yeah it's a biased on screen but that that's what it is you know like we're putting these stories on screens of people that are untold I mean that's why indie film is existent in that nature too because you're putting voices that are never aligned with those capital blockbuster films that 
sell out now in the summertime. But how else are we going to see these things? And, you know, I think that there's also still a lot of work to be done um, in historical aspects. I mentioned earlier in our conversation about the influence of Catherine Dunham on Maya Darren and how that is really seldom talked about. And, uh, you know, I learned about Maya Darren in college, but nobody ever said anything about Catherine Dunham in alignment with Maya Darren at that time, mm. right? And had I not done my own work, yeah. research, it never would have come up, right? Because it, isn't also, it also isn't really talked about that deeply in the existing scholarship. And really thinking about uh, the stuff that doesn't exist anymore. I mean, so if we think about early film, pre-1915, the majority of it, like 80% of it doesn't exist anymore. But there are records of films, for example, with uh, really famous vaudevillians in them doing full cast cakewalks and (laughs) just stuff that is really important, not just to dance film, but to dance and to culture, period, (laughs) that has just been pretty much forgotten, that people just don't think about, talk about. And so we are, as a matter of course, missing pieces of our story. So what are we going to do to call it back? You know? You got to do something. That's all you can do is just, you know, put the big shoes on, the big, big girl, big guy, big whoever boots on and, you know, elevate it. It's 2021. Why do we need to, we can't forget about it. I mean, this is the precursors of who we are today. And with that all in mind, I do want to call back to what happened last year with being at home and not being able to go to these film festivals. And, you know, as we've talked about social media and the intersect of seeing a film festival at home, what were your thoughts and reactions to that line of a new culture of living online, basically? You know, for me personally, it was really hard. (laughs) Um, I got really burnt out really quickly, uh, even though everything that I saw, people took such care to do what they could online in this new space where suddenly everything is online. So all of a sudden we have the challenges of exclusivity, which we had as festivals before, which we don't have anymore, right? In that, you know, you had people's films traveling the circuit such that they were going to be in this space on this day at this time. And a lot of times that was the only place that it would be for that week, for example. But now that everything is overlapping, we're using different digital platforms. I mean, stuff is available. And for artists, this has huge implications, right? In terms of copyright, in terms of how they're able to or not able to monetize the work. I mean, there's just so much to think about. But I think for this past 18 months, it's been, I guess, not quite. It's been a year and change that we've been doing this whole pandemic thing, people have been, people in our field have been doing their due diligence to do their very best. And that I have appreciated. And I think people have curated and put up some beautiful festivals. At the same time, this is that whole thing about balance. Like I I am having a really hard time showing up to stuff these days. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm like, okay, how can I do this? Because now it feels like we're always on, 
So this is, and I know that other people experience this as well, but my experience of the pandemic was working full-time from home with a child under two. (laughs) And uh, it was really hard. So I think that uh, when we're back to, quote, normal, whatever that means, that yes, there will be some hybridity. I think that on the one hand, having our festivals online have made them more accessible than they ever were to more people and to more artists, which is a huge plus. At the same time, the challenges that I that I brought up, uh, especially where it relates to the exclusivity and safety of artists' work and how they want it to move out into the world, that's something that we're going to have to work hard at if we're going to continue to have online components to our festivals. So for me, I think moving forward, I'm very happy to do hybrid events where some of it is online, some of it is uh, in person, knowing that one of the most exclusive things about our festivals is that they're place-based. And that often artists and audiences can't make it to us because they just don't have the capital. And we're always talking about audience development. We're always talking about how our audiences are so homogenous, how they always look the same and they have the same money and they, you know, and that, uh, that you are basically just recycling the same people over and over and over again. Um, and the, and a lot of times the same work. So, I think that this year has given us given us a chance to look a little more deeply at what we're curating, why we're curating it, who we're trying to cater to, especially now that all of a sudden our regular audiences aren't our regular audiences anymore. So now that we're catering to a wider audience, what does that mean? Now that we're catering to a more socioeconomically diverse audience, what does that mean? Now that we're catering to people uh, with vastly different backgrounds, what does that mean? And how will that change the field moving forward? So these are the questions that I'm sitting with and that I'm looking forward to exploring more as we move out of the pandemic and as we move into the way that we want to do things moving forward. So I think that's an es- a really exciting I don't want to say a black hole of questions, but it's an exciting adventure to go on. It's just the next thing that you need to defeat or maybe not defeat. Challenges are good things in my head. I, as fun as or maybe not as fun as they could be, but you, you got to put a wrench in it and figure it out just to stir things up. I mean, we kind of been in this rhythm for quite a while. And I mean, as bad as it was and all the lives that we've lost over the past year and beyond that, it, it's a good way to just stop and think. And how do we change things around? Yeah. And I lastly want to just end things off with what kind of advice do you have for those aspiring filmmakers out there that are submitting to these kinds of film festivals? I mean, as we're changing the rhythm here, people are finding out what this screen dance thing is all about. What advice do you have for them? Yeah. So I recently uh, wrote a little article for a dance magazine online about that very question. Um, And so you can go and read that because it's got some good information in it. But in a nutshell, um, remembering what the majority of these festivals are looking for is something that's not archival. I always say that 
Screen dance is one, some, or all of the following, site-specific, camera-specific, and edit-specific, that when you do get your stuff into a festival, and especially if it's a place-based festival, but even if not, I mean, there are great events that have happened online all year, make sure that you go to things. You never know who you're going to meet, how people are going to meet your work, and when they meet you, what that might mean. I think also to be mindful and planful about where you're sending your stuff, right? It's easy to just kind of throw a wide net and see what comes back. Mm -hmm. But that means that a lot of times on Film Freeway, for example, people are not reading the fine print as to what each festival is looking for. Remember that each festival has a personality and dynamic of its own. Mm -hmm. And so while that means that most every work has somewhere where it can and will be shown, that means also that your particular work is not going to fit in every single scenario. Yeah. And so being mindful, being planful about where you send your stuff so that you're not wasting your money, number one, because it can get really expensive, that you're not wasting your time in submitting to things that your stuff is not going to necessarily be shown at. And a lot of times people are like, oh, it has to do with production value. Well, not so much, actually. Not so much. It has to do with kind of the tone of the festival, the types of works that the curators are looking for. And, uh, you know, a lot of times there are even themes, right, that happen from year to year. And festivals will say, oh, this year we're looking for films about this. And, hey, my film is about that. This would be a really good place to submit because there's a better chance of it getting in, right? And so just thinking deeply and not just pressing buttons for the sake of saying, I submitted my work somewhere. Don't do that. Yeah. And so I guess in some, know that your work has somewhere to go. Uh, Go down the rabbit hole of finding where that work is best suited to be. Uh, Talk to people, reach out to people, know that the folks who are putting together these events are generally speaking really amazing people who want to share your work. So reach out if you have questions. If you have questions about needing a waiver to not have to have submission fees if you if you don't have the capital to do that. People are generally very nice. Um, if you have questions about what they do and do not curate, reach out. If you have questions about who's going to be at the festival and why that might be important to you, reach out. Just like ask questions and be a part of the community, whatever that means to you, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's the best advice to do, especially reaching out. I know as an early filmmaker, I was definitely very like nervous and naive and anxious and I don't know. And you know what? Everyone is human and everyone is super great and they're going to just answer back and they're not going to like come at you and with fangs and they're, they're just willing to help you out. And I think yeah. that's the best thing. And I will say, too, that if you don't get the answers that you're looking for, it's don't take it personally. Like, it's not because of you or your work. It probably has to do with so many other things, right? So if you don't get the answer you're looking for um, with one person or event or whatever, go on to the next one. That's what it's all about. That's awesome. That's great. Well, Kara, thank you so much for just giving us all your wisdom and all the experiences that you've shared today. It really helps people just give a little bit more of an idea of what these film festivals are like, especially what you're doing to contribute to the community. 
Thanks. Well, I, it was really great to talk to you today. And we'll also um, definitely link some of your works, including the uh, article that you recently wrote. And uh, you also have a project by the time that this episode comes out that will be happening on Juneteenth. So we'll definitely link that in the show notes for you and um, elevate all of that. So awesome. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kara and Hannah, for that thought-provoking conversation. If you would like to learn more about Kara's work or participate in the many, many initiatives she spearheads, visit her website at karahagan.net. And keep your eyes peeled for her newest project, Minifest, an opportunity to show your work, discuss it with the community, and experience a festival format you have never experienced before. More details can be found in the show notes. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at frameformpodcast at gmail.com and engage with us on social at frameformpod. That's frameform, P-O-D. Don't keep a good thing like this a secret. Invite your friends to subscribe and join the conversation. If you like what you're hearing, leave us a review and rate the show. Thanks for listening. Frameform is a production of Rixie, hosted by Hannah Weber, Jen Ray, and Claire Schweitzer. Edited by the Frameform team. Mix and theme song by myself, Mason Carlton. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.